This is a Rocket Audio production. Hello, you found Rocket Fuel, the weekly one-to-one interview podcast series where each week we find somebody that's influenced youth culture or youth marketing. This week's guest is Unser Malik. Now, Unser quite literally wrote the book on influencer marketing, or at least a book on influencer marketing. It's called Slashed It, and it's quite an innovative model in that it perpetually regenerates, a bit like Doctor Who in that respect. It keeps on adding pages as more and more things happen. You can find out more about Unser Malik on her website. But have a listen to this interview, because I think you'll be intrigued by it. Because Unser's got a vast experience of working in the influencer marketing world. And she draws on that experience when we find out a little bit about her, a little bit about her career so far. And then we ask Unser Malik, the author of Slashed It, the ultimate book on influencer marketing, for her rocket fuel. The first thing to say is Unser Malik, thank you so much for being this week's guest on Rocket Fuel. Thank you for having me. Good. Now, so we're going to start and learn a bit about your background. Tell us about your journey, first of all. How have you got to being the author of a book on influencer marketing? Something you say is the ultimate book on influencer marketing. What's been your journey? How have you got to where you are now? So I, I mean, I take a right back to the beginning. I studied journalism at university. And during that time, while digital was progressing and a lot of publications had a digital counterpart, social media was a very new thing to the general world. So when I was in uni, it was kind of the infancy stage of social media. And at the time, publishers were the first kind of companies to jump on the bandwagon of social media. They were the first to really capitalise on the idea that you could attract a huge uh, web referral or traffic from your Facebook or Twitter page at the time, Instagram wasn't really a thing, onto your web page. Um, and then, you know, eventually it got to the point where it was almost, dan- Facebook in particular was dangerously powerful for publishers because you got so much of the traffic from Facebook over Google. So I would say, because I had my background in journalism, and I was at the beginning of social media, my general interest in digital journalism kind of naturally led into social media. So then I started taking up roles as the kind of social media assistant and eventually moved on to editor and manager, et cetera, for publications. And then I went to a bit more on the broadcast side when I was at uh, E! Entertainment. So they were with a uh, now defunct, unfortunately, freelance um, group or agency even uh, who did quite a few different broadcasters so BBC Radio 1, Universal Radio and E Entertainment so I kind of worked on a few projects there predominantly E working on of course the main reality TV shows which everyone love over there on their community management again that was very Twitter and Facebook heavy Instagram yeah you'd upload your pictures but it wasn't a massive traffic referral and that was the main aim at the time for social media and then from that I went on to our magazine I thought I need to go to a massive publication a much bigger publication I want to own a whole social media strategy and I would say even though by the time I got to L I'd work at the Guardian E suitcase magazine a lot of these amazing uh, magazines slash newspapers L magazine was on a much larger scale and I got to kind of do a lot more and again really honing on that social strategy um, when I joined, it was a integral time for digital for L because there was a whole new digital team, a fantastic new digital editor, 
etc kind of worked through that and then I thought you know what I've worked at the top of the top for publications I've done my entertainment the Guardian L magazine and for me that was a top uh, newspaper top magazine glossy one and top broadcaster so where do I go after this and I decided to join the brand side of things which was the Rodeal group and that was heading um, initially my role was social and content manager for two brands so Rodeal it's your luxury brand so in your Harvey Nicks Pirates etc and then you've got Nip and Fab your very millennial brand found on your boots and super drug and those typical beauty influences you see on Instagram now um, Nip and Fab is the kind of brand which they use and that's when I was first introduced to influence and marketing. I mean, not completely first introduced. I think that's the way they called bloggers. Yeah. So, and what was your first introduction? I mean, was it a was it a paid for campaign? Were you giving them products? How how did you immerse yourself in that world? Yeah. So I mean, when I first came into the world of influence and marketing, as we have it today, not your typical bloggers, your Instagrammers and YouTubes, etc. I, for me, it was about growing a relationship first, and I remain true to say in that influencer marketing is first about your people skills more than is about the technology behind influencer marketing and those numbers that you get, because if you can maintain those relationships and really understand what's behind these influencers that you work with, the results will come out on the other end. And I think that's been a huge part of my success. I've written a massive article on this on Medium and it kind of went viral in the Medium space um, in that you need to reach out to these people, yes, on a gifting basis, but also just really get to know them. You know, if they're bigger and they're in London, invite them to head office, have a coffee, meet at your local um, place for lunch and understand what it is about them, which people love when they're followed on these online social platforms. And then from there, it was very natural, organic progression into first, and it's a classic case, I'm sure any influencer monster manager will agree, when you first join a brand that's new to this kind of industry, they don't have budget, right? They just, they want an influencer manager. Um, and you know, my role was joined with social media. I actually asked for the title of social and influencer manager after a while, because I felt like Nip and Fab being such a millennial heavy brand, uh, it it was a no, no brainer that, influencer had to merge with social media in that sense because I felt like influencers were going to lead us on social media and you started making an argument for budget how did you go about doing that how did you build the model to convince the brand that you were working for that influencers were the future yeah so it's it's a combination of things first it's seeing the general industry so this was the beauty industry, which is heavily, heavily um, reliant on influencer marketing as it is today, and as it was when I was there um, at the beauty group. So it was showing what the industry trends are. Then it was using whatever I could in my gifting capacity to show what the return is when I work with XYZ influencers. Then asking for a smaller budget, so your kind of test and trial run, and making sure I worked with influencers who I was almost certain would get some return on investment um, from that. And, you know, by return on investment, I'm also very careful in how I worded that. It doesn't always mean sales. You have to be very careful in knowing that the main goal for a lot of influencer marketing campaigns will be brand awareness over your sales. Um, and then once you see the kind of results from that, you can uh, really capitalize on that and start asking for more budget slowly, slowly, slowly. And 
the end goal, which Sanko did get there, is being given that bigger budget. So the first part of this was about um, is about you and, and your background. You took us on a journey to where you started working for a brand and proving the case for influencer marketing. What happened next, Unser? Where, where did you go next on your journey? So after that, um, I felt like I... So at the point when I was finished on the brand side, well, not finished, but I felt like I'd expired my time and I'd learned a lot of things and achieved a lot of things. And in my head, I've had this idea just because by this point I'd been in the industry for so long that I wanted to write an ebook. But my gut just told me to go and work for one more big brand, big names, and try and learn even more about this space of social media and influencer marketing. And that's when I joined Lime Pictures, who, you know, they're leading TV production company and they do a lot of unscripted and scripted TV shows, which people watch on the TV, primetime TV. The main shows I worked on were Hollyoaks, The Early Ways Essex and Celebs Go Dating, where I was the digital partnerships and influencer manager. You've now written a book. What led you to write the book? And so why did you think, A, there was a gap and the book needed writing? And why were you the person to write this book? So I would say my growth or my journey to writing this book was pretty natural. Uh, when I was at the Rodial Group and I was working with a lot of influencers and I built so many relationships, I have been asked so many questions, you know, how do I grow? How do I do X, Y, Z? How do I pitch? How can a brand pay me? How do I get on the PR list? All those sort of questions. And then the more generic ones, how do I actually grow on social media? Everything I find isn't right, blah, blah, blah. Um, so at one point I was like, I don't have time to personally consult every single person. So on my personal Instagram page, which had a fair amount of influencers following me, probably around three to three to 500, just because that's how I kind of kept up with what they were doing. I posted an Instagram post on 10 ways on how to increase your engagement. And it wasn't your generic 10 ways that you find when you go onto Google and someone's saying the same thing. It wasn't me trying to get money out of anyone. It was just a plain post and me saying, you keep asking me these questions. This is the post, go ahead, read it. And there's my answers, just this one question that you ask. That post went viral in the influencer space and then in a lot of small brand space as well. And then I got um, 10,000 questions in return on top of that. And I thought, okay, this is a lot. There's definitely a lot wow. of questions I'm getting. Um, so I made a separate Instagram page. Who were the questions coming from? Was it Were they coming from influencers? Was it coming from brands? Was it coming from agencies? What sort of, and what sort of things were you being asked? It, it was it was a mixture actually of all three predominantly influencers and then brands who hadn't worked with influencers before and it was it, it actually it came from two sides and because I have worked in-house for so long and I had become friends or, or kind of built working relationship with so many influencers I kind of saw the struggles on both sides of the party so the questions were you know from the influencer side why aren't brands paying us and then I would have to be honest and be like, look, I don't we, I don't walk into the office and I'm not given like a million pound budget just like that. And if I am declining you for a partnership, it's not always necessarily me not wanting to pay you. You know, when you work in house in nine to five, there are so many people above you and you have a structure that you have to respect. And then you have the other end of brands saying, well, why? Why should we have to pay them? You know, we're giving them free product. 
And then it's me arguing on the influencer behalf and saying, well, actually, this is how they make their money. And how they see it is if you're paying a freelancer to make an ad campaign for you and producing that piece of content, they see that in the same way. They're producing that piece of content. And this is how they essentially pay their bills and put a roof on top of their head. So that's why they're paid. So it was all those kind of in-between questions, which no one asked. And I felt like a lot of these online courses one, let me be honest, I think a lot of them are overpriced, like £1,500 plus for the most generic information telling you you should be posting video content and how to use a filter and how to find a hashtag. That you can find on Google, yeah. and I don't think anyone should yeah. be paying for such information. So there was that kind of market. And then I do think I have this unique experience of working for a few big names in lots of different uh, niches and industries. So, I mean, when you read my ebook, I kind of explain a lot about algorithms. And I kind of talk about my experience when I was at a national fashion publication and how the algorithm kind of hit me like a with a brick for Facebook. And people are complaining about Instagram now, but till this day, how Facebook hit me Instagram has never in comparison is nothing so I think people kind of see the journey that I've taken how I've grown inside and within the industry they saw it's someone who we can see actually has the experience to teach us something which other people might not and, and so professionally what would you say that you're known for what's the what's the thing that if people as you walk into a room in the professional capacity what do people say about you do you think the social girl Wherever I go, it's just she's a social girl. She's going to be. I'm a very um, active person in my role, and I think the social media manager or whatever, even if you know the intern or the assistant, wherever it is, you need to be very active in your role, on the go, twenty four seven. Ideas popping out of your head, ready to bring out your iPhones, take a boomerang of whatever's happening behind the scenes. A lot of people would say I'd always had my phone there. I'm kind of like in people's faces, trying to take content. Uh, so. I've always been known as a social girl and because I've done that from the very beginning I mean yes I worked in digital journalism and that's why I ended up in publications but I'm still the social girl at these publications as well. And how in the professional space how do you like to be managed and what qualities do you look for in the people that you work with? Um, I'm, I'm the kind of person who says I mean and I've learned from the managers above me who I've loved and I've kind of taken what how they've treated me and progressed me and kind of apply it to people who then I manage in that you know you kind of work hard play hard ethics in that you put 100% into your work and as long as the work is done um, I'm not going to tell you to kind of do your extra hours go over time to kind of play yourself and feel mentally drained by your work and as long as these kind of KPIs are hit, because we all have them, I have them from the person above me, and then you have them from me. As long as those KPIs are hit, then we can have a fun time while we're at work as well. And what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Um, to, to not be complacent in my career in general. And if you kind of look through my CV, you will see that I have no problems in moving to a different company. I don't, for me, especially in this day and age, uh, when you see a lot of CEOs kind of saying, oh, I want someone who's going to be super loyal and stay with me for 15 years. For me, if someone truly wants to progress in social and digital, especially um, when you're in your younger years, move around, jump around, hop around, you know, do your time, learn as much as you can. And once you feel like you're not learning anymore, 
move on to the next role. And as soon as I was given that advice very early on in my career, while I was still in uni, I took that on. And essentially that's what's helped me grow my experience for what it is today. So I'm still here with Unsa Malik. Unsa, talk to me about growth in influencer marketing. Where is it coming from and why is growth such an important metric? Yeah, obviously growth is a huge part of social media. And if you're not growing um, after all of your efforts, then you're not doing something right and you need to kind of look back to your drawing board. But I think it's important to understand what growth means and it's more than just growing your follower account. It's more than just growing your engagement rate. You really have to dig deeper away from those vanity metrics of likes, etc. And growth to me is people firstly recognizing your brand. So if you have 20 more people recognizing your brand this week than last week, then you have grown because you've grown in brand awareness. Even if you have only two more sales, you have grown in your sales. Obviously, when you're at a bigger brand, those numbers are going to be bigger. And I do think by the time you get to a bigger brand, um, a lot of them have kind of very good hired experts and professionals who understand this, but it's understanding, finding out what exactly growth means to you, whether it's uh, traffic to your website, whether it's email subscriptions, whether you're trying to make more sales, whether it's more followers, likes, et cetera, and then measuring that against one another. So there's not just, you can't just say I've grown on social media. It's how have you grown on social media? Um, if you, for example, look at my page, it's got 23,000 followers. That's not a lot. In the grand scheme of influencers and experts and brands, whatever whatever kind of bracket people put me in, that's not a huge number of followers, but I've managed to make an incredible kind of amount of sales and grown my brand name, etc. just on that following. So for me, that's massive growth. But then someone who's not looking at growth in that metric will say, well, I've only got 20,000 followers and XYZ influencer has 100, 500,000, 1 million followers. So I'm not growing. So yes, growth is important. But what's more important is understanding what growth means to you and your brand. My next question is one around who's going to drive influencer marketing, because there are a number of different factors at play with influencer marketing. What do you think will drive it? forwards will it be the talent will it be brands will it be the platforms or a combination i think a combination of all of them because you need the influencers to make the content and you need them to keep growing in order to get that return on your spend but also you need the brands to give influencers a chance and you need them to kind of put more budget behind their influencer marketing efforts in order for the collaborations and the joint partnership to really take effect. And then you do have the side of platforms needing to really help these content collaborators in how they work. So, you know, it's down to the small things such as being transparent and being giving them a bit more detail about their metrics and their insights. So then they can see that off and give that to the brand, uh, introducing new tools and features for them to use. And, you know, I think a lot of social platforms are very good at adapting to brands and publishers because they're massive ad spenders and they're not so great on the influencer side. So, yes, Instagram, when you make a professional account, you can make a content content creator account um, over a business account. And, you know, TikTok actually is great for content creators. But I do think 
in order for that, for that industry to involve and the fact that these influencers do rely on social media, it's a combination of the platform and the brands who have more money than the influencers, uh, generally speaking, to put in their combined efforts with the influencers who make the content. Where should brands look for value? Should they go, look for the reach? Should they look for the niche? What, what works and what doesn't? Or is it different for every brand? Um, it's different for every brand. It just depends on your goal. But if we have to speak in generic terms on what should work across the board, it's first, yes, looking at your niche. So what influences kind of talk about the same topics as your brand or cover the same areas? And then it's looking at the content these influencers post is what they post does it will it feel natural to the brand if you posted their content on your brand's feed will it feel organic or would it feel like a typical hashtag ad post make sure you pick people whose brand values completely aligns with your own or aligns as much as possible and then you kind of look at your goal so if it's to grow in brand awareness it is your reach and your impressions and then maybe looking at your comments how are people responding to this campaign and so on I do think you need to kind of dig deep into all those small different parts of metrics and also the influencer what they're about and what they do um, before you even consider asking them or sending them a brief for the content. Um, Who do you think is braver do you think it's small brands big brands or agencies who's driving the innovation? 100% 100% agencies. I think <laughs> agencies have always kind of driven the innovation because essentially that's their job, right? They have uh, an expert team of crazy talented people across the board and then they go to the brand with an amazing pitch and deck and then they go out and they do the work. And I think essentially the brands that use the agencies are always ahead because they're looking for people to go above and beyond for their brands a lot of the time it's very easy when you're sitting in-house to get a bit too comfortable and to not think outside the box because you don't have that outside fresh perspective and you know I worked in-house for a long time I loved working in-house but I would also always try and see what brands and agencies are doing and seeing how we can kind of match in that fresh innovation. Now we at Rocket you know Rocket Fuel the podcast is brought to brought to people by Rocket, the youth marketing and youth content business. We did our first influencer marketing campaign all the way back in 2012. So we're veritable veterans in the space, but we've really noticed things changing in influencer marketing. I'd love to ask you and so what what's changed as you've seen influencer marketing develop. And also maybe just as the channel has matured, is there almost an over-reliance on data? And and we've had Lucy Loveridge from Gleam on the show before, and she said there's almost an over-reliance on data and somewhere on that journey, the, the art of creating brilliant content has been lost a little bit. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I agree with that. And I think my first instinct when you ask that question is to say, it feels a tiny bit like the fun and the creative and the natural authentic side of using influencers has been, has been taken out and I, I don't really think you can blame one party I think it, it's you know you can put it on the content creators but you can also put it on the brands and what they expect from the content creators as well um, if these influencers didn't feel like they needed to act in such a polished and typical kind of way they wouldn't have done it in the first place so I do think I do think we've lost a bit of the fun to it and 
again, as with everything which evolves, when it gets to a point where you feel like it's almost a uh, saturated market or you just have a bit of a content overload, there's a lot of noise coming in and then people are just throwing their opinions left, right, centre. People start asking questions they don't need to ask. People start even worrying about things that they don't need to worry about. And back in the days when you first had influence and campaigns, yes, people cared about their followers and likes, but to me, it felt like it didn't feel like such a drain mentally on the content creator um, as it does today. And what's the art of briefing an influencer? What's, where, where do you get the best results when you're working with an influencer? Um, so first, I have to, I'm very particular in my brief. So I need to know what the influencer already posts on their social feeds. And I need to make sure the brief I'm sending will fit somewhat organically on their feed. Now, obviously, it's an ad post and it's sponsored or whatever word you use in replacement of that. But it needs to be something the audience can still relate to. And it's so whether that's the niche or whether that's the type of content you ask them to do, there'll be some campaigns where I will kind of split my deliverable. So some influencers will do video content, some will do stories, uh, some will just post an image because that suits them best. And then in terms of the actual brief, I have my kind of set of rules that you need to post X, Y, Z. You're going to get paid this much. These are the legal terms. Um, this is your time frame. And then if there's any kind of other bits, for example, exclusivity, get that all out of the way. And then in terms of content creation, really, I kind of give it up to them to kind of be creative on their part, because this is what influencers are. They are creators of content and a lot of them are innovators and they know their audience better than you know the audience. So I don't like telling people what to do um, and I don't like directing them exactly. I will give them a general overview, but then I let them do the work. And if they come back to me and I feel like there's something they need to edit, then we'll work on that. But 99% of the time, I've had no problems in letting them be creative, giving me the work. I kind of sign it off and approve it or ask for a change here and there. And then that does also give the better results in the end as well. There's an awful lot of, um, say, marketing managers and marketing directors in their you know, mid-20s to mid-30s that are signing off content that's designed for audiences much younger than them. It's tough to relinquish that control when you're representing a brand, isn't it? You're in a something of a unique position where you've been both in-house, you've worked for agencies, you've, you've briefed influencers. Talk to us about that control because, of course, in previous generations you got to sign off the script of a tv ad with influencers more often than not you don't and that you need to give away some of that control of the brand equity don't you yeah yeah and it's speaking from an in-house perspective it's it's not hard for me to give up the control just because i feel like i'm getting better results in the end but it's the 100 people you're working with in-house from lots of different departments and trying to make make sense of the fact that I'm going to let this influencer do what they need to in order for me to get what I want and I think it's a lot of these in-house teams have a lot of traditional marketing experts or um, digital professionals who are great at what they do in different aspects so whether that's traditional PR or the e-com manager and so on but 
for me, if you don't give up that control, you're not going to get the best out of influencer campaigns. And I've had instances where, you know, you, when you're working in house, you choose your battles. There's going to be some days where you're like, you know what, I'm not kind of getting what I'm saying across. I'm going to have to go ahead with what a group of like 15 people have agreed with, and I'm going to have to sign off on sign off on it. And then there'll be, you know, those places where I'm told to completely control and direct everything that's going on with these influences. And then the results don't come in the end because they're not in their natural self. You know, their job is to be an influencer and it's to be themselves. They're not actors and they shouldn't be acting either. That's not the point of these influencer marketing campaigns. So I think if people just thought for a second, just to let a tiny bit of that control go um, and to not view this as the same leg as you, as you view the other parts of your digital brand or marketing efforts, you know, it's a completely different leg completely different new industry. I want to ask a big question next, which is where will influencer marketing go next, do you think? And also I'd love to get your view on platforms versus managed service. I think it's definitely going to grow. And I think in some ways this pandemic, while a lot of smaller brands have had to cut out their budgets, well, I've seen a lot of the bigger brands kind of reshuffle their digital budgets or budget they might have spent elsewhere um, in a non-pandemic world put into influencer marketing because that's where everything is right now and I think it has in a bittersweet way proven the point in that influencers can be very powerful people online. As for the future I think we're going to go through a phase when I think I can kind of see it now where people are growing a tiny bit thick of this whole influencer space and I'm not saying that in that it's going to die down I don't think it's going to die down anytime soon I think we just reached a point of oversaturation and I think once we reach that point we need to take it back a step and we need to look at the more unfiltered a bit more raw and a bit more authentic campaigns and I do see brands going in that direction so I'm hoping and I'm predicting a lot of brands will kind of see it for how it is and that these influencers need to be exactly who they are in order to create the content they need to create. And that kind of platform versus managed service thing do you think there's a role for both going forward do you think one is more effective at achieving a certain kind of activity than another sorry if you just clarify what do you mean by managed service so there are two different kind of ways to get influencer marketing done one is reach out individually so a managed service being real people talking to influencers or their managers and dealing directly versus a platform maybe a takumi maybe a a tribe where you push a button it spews out a brief to a hundred different influencers and it, it's kind of delivered by natural selection yep um so i'm a huge believer in speaking directly to the influencer or the influencer manager and even when I use these kind of managed platforms and they give me a selection of potential influences, I would still go out of my way to kind of scan the influencer on Instagram and see what they're about. And I think this is what, but it's kind of annoying to say because I know these managed services are great and they do help in so many ways. I'm not discrediting them. But again, it just goes back to my point in that there's so much people relationship involved in influencer marketing and that's why I think it kind of sits under PR as well, just because it has that element. And these managed services are great for if you have huge campaigns and, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of influencers to pick from and you just want a short list of 100, for example. It's great for that short list. 
But in terms of actually picking the final few influencers you're going to use, I still think that you'd have to do your manual search on your platforms to see if they're the exact right fit for you. Let's focus on your book now, if that's all right, Ansar. Um, I'm really keen to get because there's loads and loads of talk about influencers. There's loads and loads of talk about influencer marketing. Where do you contrast, where do your opinions go against the grain? What's your biggest, most strident opinion that almost conflicts with conventional wisdom when talking about influencer marketing? Influencer rates and how much they should be paid. Um, and I say this in my ebook. How awesome. This is really yeah. exciting. I want to hear your thoughts on this. Um, and I, I mean, I say this in my ebook, and I tell everyone in that there is no industry standard. And when people, and I've made actually what I call the influencer rates equation, in which people kind of work out um, what they think they might be worth. But I have worked with influencers who are on 200k followers, and in my opinion, are worth. £10,000 for an Instagram video versus some influencers who are 1 million followers and in my opinion are only worth around 2000 for the Instagram video because the actual level of influence is what should direct the uh, fee the influence is ultimately getting and I don't think a lot of people look at the actual level of influence I think it's great to look at things like engagement rates and likes and if you want the following numbers and so on but what are people actually saying in the comments these influencers are people showing their shopping bags of products from you know after they've seen an influencer promote a product on their instagram page so for me it's the actual level of influence and i don't think enough people do that and people kind of get annoyed when they do this and they're like you know well oh my god i have a million followers and you think that i should only be paid xyz amount but to me it's you know that's if that's £5,000 coming out of my budget, I need to see some kind of return. And I'm not saying it needs to be in sales. And I said this right from the beginning that a lot of influencer marketing, you know, the end result isn't going to be sales. There are very few influencers who are going to be able to sell out a product completely for you. And they're very rare. And when you do come across them, be expected to pay a huge amount. And I hope they do charge a huge amount as well. But otherwise, it's the actual term, the actual... um sorry, influence, you have over an audience should completely dictate how much you're going to pay. It kind of, it, it, it irritates people because they say, you know, I'm putting so much work into my content, but which I get, and I'm not saying don't get paid. You know, I tell people, no, stand your ground and make sure you do get paid, but don't expect to be paid such a huge figure when your real level of influence within the niche isn't going to give the brand or yourself the great return okay that that makes sense to me so what you're saying is effectively negotiate with agents and negotiate with talent yeah um I mean, if you're a brand or an agency yeah yeah and then you also you know you have to kind of look into greater detail because if the influencer has an agency or a manager they also get a commission and then the fee is going to automatically be higher um there's just there's just so many tiny things which go into the fee of the influencers paid and there is just not a single industry standard and I was just speaking to someone the other day and they said do you think we need to kind of set this benchmark in the industry and I said what we can but how would it be possible to even share that benchmark because it's such an open space influencer marketing it's not like an editorial guideline for a newspaper you know there are so many influencers and then so many um agencies and micro agencies and then 
managers and then like friends who are managers etc so it's a very wide spectrum but essentially yes okay um last question in this section i just want to ask kind of of a helicopter view did the growth and proliferation of tiktoks get did it surprise you and what's the next platform or or, in, or social network we should be looking out for what's going to be the next tiktok if you like um i'm not sure what the next tiktok is in all honesty i think tiktok is the future just like instagram was the future and i think it's time for every influencer who really wants to thrive in that space to be on tiktok right now and I'm seeing more and more different types of niches landing on TikTok and doing very well. You know, you have maths tutors and legal advisors, financial advisors, and then you've got your typical uh, beauty influencers and then people who invest in property, etc. So there's lots to do on that space. Whether I saw the kind of growth happening, I think anyone who's worked in social for a time could kind of see that this platform called TikTok was going somewhere right from the beginning stages when they weren't even called TikTok. There was just so much talk about it in the industry um, and just so much money pumped into it. And then you could see it kind of growing in other countries before it reached to the US and the UK market. So it doesn't surprise me to a huge extent how much it's grown. And I do think a part of that growth did come from being everyone being locked down in-house, you know, in this pandemic and needing a bit of entertainment and getting a bit of sick of Instagram and wanting something a bit more fun and entertaining. And, you know, just the general trends of things just being a bit more authentic and more video content, more fun, and also catering towards Gen Zs. I think Instagram is very millennial and it's grown with the millennials, but TikTok is very Gen Z and Gen Zs are our future. So I'm still here with Anissa Malik. She's the author of Slashed It, the ultimate book on influencer marketing. She's worked brand side. She was worked agency side. She's worked with influencers. We're going to ask her for her rocket fuel. That's kind of practical takeaways, some insights that our audience of people that broadly work in youth marketing, youth culture, tech, media marketing can take away and bring into their daily lives. So, Unser, if that isn't too intimidating, what do you know about young audiences and what's important to young audiences? I think young audiences are very smart and they're very tech savvy. So if you thought millennials are one step ahead of the game, these Gen Zs are 1,000 steps ahead of the game. And I think you need to treat them as such. Um, they're very kind of go-getters in their own right. They know what they want. They know how to make their content. They know how to make money. These people were born in an age of complete social media and um, technology evolution time and time again. Millennials like myself, we kind of, you kind of skipped the mark because you had a phase in your life where you were allowed to be just a kid away from your phone. You had things like MSN and BlackBerry Messenger but then the internet cut off and then you're kind of just doing your homework or you're in the garden or you're with your friends hanging outside. These younger audiences have been born and raised on iPads, iPhones etc. So they're very smart and they're very tech savvy and if you really want to understand them you need to kind of in a way look up to them and kind of see what they're saying the conversations they're having and it's actually quite funny when you do have these conversations because nine times out of the time, they're actually laughing at us. And they're laughing at millennials and laughing at the older generation for not knowing much about their generation. So yep. I, think, I think we need to we need to give them that credit that they do know a lot. So 
what do you think has changed about young audiences and what do you think will change next in the way that they behave? I think the biggest thing that's changed for young audiences is that they're becoming a lot more clued on to how they can make their memes online and on social media. And I think TikTok was a massive, massive uh, revelation for them in being able to do that. And I think going forwards in the future, brands are actively, no matter what you kind of position your brands in, so there are a lot of massive, massive beauty brands who probably have a bigger audience on Instagram and catching those millennials who maybe have a bit more disposable income to buy their products, but are now placing their efforts onto TikTok for that younger generation because these are kind of the future. And as they're growing, they're kind of growing with TikTok and they know TikTok better than anyone else. So final question in our rocket fuel section of the chat, who gets it right and who gets it wrong? Whether you name names or give us an example or, or just kind of speak more broadly, when talking to youth audiences, who gets it right and who gets it wrong? I think the people that get it right, whether you're an agency or a brand, are those who go directly to the source. So you're going directly to those Gen Zs, as we call them. And you're also the people who are going to these kind of places and being the first to go to it. So those first kind of agencies that went onto TikTok, they're the ones that get it the most because they know that that's the future. The first brands that are launching on TikTok, they get it the most because they know that's the future. Even if you look at influencers who exist on YouTube and Instagram first, they understand um, the appeal in attracting Gen Zs the most when they first kind of get onto platforms where the Gen Zs are. And if you kind of look at the trends of social media and the people that have grown, those that are on the millions of followers on Instagram or over a million subscribers on YouTube, they were there first before anyone else, they're innovators. And they're the people who consistently do get it right. So every brand, in my opinion, right now, who are kind of splitting their budgets across Instagram and TikTok, instead of focusing on just Instagram, are the people getting it right? Because that's where the trends are going towards. So brands and organisations with an understanding of where the audience are, not where the audience once was. <laughs> yeah. Got exactly. it. So finally then, sir, um, is there one takeaway that you'd like our audience to go away with? It might be an answer to a question that I've asked or because my questions haven't been very good, it might be something completely fresh that you'd like the audience to walk away with. Well, the thing which I say to so many people, because I get so many DMs from kind of brands and kind of smaller agencies made up of smaller teams and also influencers. And my answer is always stop stressing so much. I think in a world where we have so much data and there are so many different opinions flying around and always a new article to read, and now even more so, everyone's online piping in. You go on Twitter, someone's talking about something. You go on LinkedIn, you see, you know, other people arguing about a different topic. And it's very easy to get caught in that noise. And social media, first and foremost, is about one, kind of your two-way communication, and two, being creative. And they're two fairly simple things. So just work on your content and speak to your audience and stop overstressing. Like, so what if your engagement went down by 2% this week? So what if you lost 500 followers this week and, you know, stop overanalyzing all those very tiny things and take a tiny bit of that stress away. And so where can people find out more about you? Where can they find your book and what's coming up next for you? 
you can find out about me just by searching my name. I mean, the benefits of having a name no one else has. <laughs> it's fairly easy to find me. Uh, so just my name. I'm across all your platforms, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, predominantly, and also a Medium blog. Uh, what's next for me? Well, my ebook is an ebook I search in which I constantly update it. So people pay the one time and I'm always kind of giving them updates just because there are so many new features coming in and out especially Instagram, they're really on one right now, aren't they? There's just, they're just banging them out. <laughs> Lots of new things. So I get a lot of questions about things which are introduced. So it's just constantly evolving on that ebook. And then kind of just going from there, it's um, it's not been long since my ebook has been out. So let's yeah. see um, where that's going, but yeah. Um, so I can't thank you enough for being this week's guest on Rocket Fuel. It's been really good to chat. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. So that was Unsa Malik. She's written a book. She's achieved a lot in her career so far. Some of her thoughts on influence marketing, I didn't necessarily think were setting the world alight. But actually, as I do think we find more and more parallels with influence marketing to other channels, I think we're seeing the whole concept of influence marketing grow up. And Unsa has certainly articulated some of the themes around that. If you think somebody will get something out of this podcast, do us a favour. Share it with them, will you? And also, give us some positive feedback wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on social media. We are We Are Rocket on Twitter. I'm James Erskine, E-R-S-K-I-N-E on Twitter. Give us any feedback, any thoughts, any potential for guests. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, hopefully we'll see you next week on Rocket Fuel. This is a Rocket Audio production.